Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalvo Rohash and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Giselle Dani, also from the American Enterprise Institute. Our friend Yuria Joja from the Middle East Institute is out today, but we are joined by a special guest, Christian Silvio Bouchoy, a member of the European Parliament from Romania and the chair of the Committee on Industry, Research and Energy. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Christian, I want to turn to you with a you know, very immediate question, namely the question of... Uh, of, of the challenge of Europe's dependence on Russian energy. Yesterday, we heard Russians saying that they were disconnecting Poland and Bulgaria from their natural gas supplies uh, because they were not paying in rubles, as the Russians had requested. Do you think that actually the decision to disconnect Europe from Russian gas might come from Moscow rather than from, from Western and Central Eastern European capitals? Hello, and I'm very happy and very honored to be here on this podcast with you, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Well, uh, it is not easy to predict, as uh, we experience uh, very unpredictable behavior of uh, Russian authorities, Russian presidents, with the illegal and criminal action against Ukraine. What is very clear is that from the beginning of this conflict, European Union took a strategic medium-term decision to replace Russian gas. This uh, came with the European Commission communication, Repower EU, and a lot of statements from head of states and governments, even at the Extraordinary Council, that this is the direction that we should uh, go, and uh, uh, as quick as possible, as soon as possible, we should uh, uh, not buy any more gas from uh, from Russia uh, into European uh, uh, countries. This, of course, uh, cannot happen uh, overnight because uh, our exposure is very high and uh, some important uh, uh, and big economies of European Union are very much dependent on the Russian gas. Of course, it was a decision that was taken many years ago. It came uh, with time, but now we are in this situation and we have to manage it. Uh, what it means that we go in this direction? First of all, we'll, we started to find uh, different suppliers. And here, uh, the partnership with the United States and uh, the solution that can come from United States with LNG gas is extremely important. And United States, like uh, the most important strategic partner, is a big solution for uh, for us in this direction. But also we started to discuss with Qatar, with Algeria, with Norway, with Azerbaijan. And uh, we have solutions to replace most of the Russian gas in several years. Then, of course, uh, we would uh, need to reduce the total consumption of gas in Europe. This is in line with our strategic uh, goal of Green Deal, the carbonization of our economy, energy, transport, agriculture, industry in 2050 with a very strong uh, targets in 2030. We are currently working in the European Parliament and my committee, the committee that I'm chairing, is um, uh, key on this, on the Fit for 55 package, the most important legislative package that we have now in the European Parliament. So reducing the total consumption, uh, increasing the renewables, increasing the targets uh, uh, and the ambition of energy efficiency, investing a lot in hydrogen. These two directions, new supply 
and um, uh, new sources of energy were already taken. And I'm sure that this made the Russian very nervous because they know that irrespective of what they are doing, in few years they will not sell any more gas to European Union. If the decision to disconnect these two countries is part of their anguish, of their fear that uh, they will be replaced eventually, it's difficult to assess, but I'm sure it is also related to this. Um, on who will uh, decide first to cut uh, off uh, the gas, also it's, it's, it's difficult. European Union um, is committed to reduce significantly this year, that's why we will increase the gas storage in European Union, that's why we uh, introduce a new platform for uh, gas uh, uh, supply and gas negotiation with other uh, uh, suppliers. Uh, but uh, uh, even with the full storage in our storage capacity, uh, this cannot happen this winter. Kristen, you mentioned that the United States has an important role to play here. Currently, we're uh, enjoying a season of uh, criticizing the Europeans and particularly the Germans for the dependency on Russian supplies. But um, if you could elaborate a little bit uh, uh, to describe how you can foresee the United States helping Europe make this transition, enabling it and participating in it as well as uh, uh, complaining about it. Some of the criticism, of course, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is right, and I'm sure that uh, also those European countries uh, which uh, became so exposed on, uh, on Russian gas uh, are also understand now that maybe some of the decisions were not the best. Clearly, uh, this uh, criminal behavior uh, was not expected by many of European leaders, many of European countries. We knew that Russia is a threat. Russia always uses energy as a geopolitical arm. Part of the situation that we had already before the invasion in uh, October, November, December, at the beginning of this year with the high prices on gas in the special was also because of the game that Gazprom did, not increasing the quantities uh, and uh, uh, triggering uh, high price. Of course, was not the only cause. I'm not going detail what were the main causes. But of course, part of it was the gas game and Russia using energy as a geopolitical arm. But not many of us expected that they will go in this crazy that in the end, of course, they will lose um, uh, war and uh, making all these crimes in Ukraine. This is quite unexpected. So some of the criticism we can accept. And I think that those countries are accepting. How how uh, United States could um, could help, could contribute? There is already a, a very uh, significant and uh, a solid dialogue between European Commission and the uh, United States government on uh, uh, building uh, LNG uh, supply to, uh, to Europe. But for this, of course, we need to do uh, several actions. On European side, of course, we need to increase our terminals or capacity to receive LNG because at this moment uh, there is a small uh, room of maneuvers, more capacity on current existing LNG terminals, mainly in the south of Spain and Belgium. Uh, we already import LNG gas from uh, from United States, but what we'd like to, to see is to increase a lot in order to replace uh, partially the, the Russian gas, because even uh, with the uh, huge potential of uh, uh, United States gas industry and uh, 
what uh, the shell gas and everything that was uh, developed in the United States in the lightest year, um, we cannot replace the whole quantity. We'd like to do, but uh, the experts are saying it's impossible. Uh, on the European, uh, on the United States uh, uh, side, of course, uh, first of all, the expectation is to have uh, uh, clear commitments with the minimum quantity and the medium term contracts, 10, 15, 20 years. It's still a matter of negotiation, but we can understand that because nobody, private companies will not invest if they don't have a, a clear horizon for this. Second, of course, there is an expectation that maybe European companies will participate in some of these investments. And it's an interesting idea that I will uh, take back to the European Commission, to European Parliament, to my colleagues in the committee, that maybe this also, beside the uh, proper investment, the concrete investment, it is also a strong political sign that there is a medium uh, and long-term commitment uh, uh, to this. Uh, to advocate that uh, maybe the permitting part will be eased, will be simplified in the United States, and this is something that uh, we already started uh, uh, to do. And of course, uh, uh, here uh, it's a discussion between Europe, United States companies and the authorities in the United States to look a little bit on the situation of pricing, because now the price is very high. Of course, the investment will be forecast on medium price. But if the prices will be very low again, uh, some safeguards, some guarantees, some uh, support uh, for uh, for this investment should be taken uh, uh, here in the United States. And it's, I understand the discussion between the companies which are willing to invest and the uh, United States uh, authorities. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, as I said, uh, United States LNG uh, is a big solution for, for Europe uh, to replace uh, Russian gas. I think probably we have some work to do as well on uh, picking back up with building export terminals uh, on our side of the equation. One of the things we were talking about uh, prior to the podcast was also how the infrastructure for distributing the gas across Europe can be kind of a can jumpstart the transition to uh, efficient and uh, inexpensive uh, renewable uh, sources of, of energy. Uh, I think that's something that Americans are not that aware of and our listeners might be interested in hearing about. So if you could uh, um, give us your views on that, I think that would be very helpful. We revised uh, recently the legislation on trans-European networks in, uh, in energy. And um, during the last years, a part of European funds, part of European centralized budget was devoted to finance interconnectors between different member states. Uh, but with the new legislation, we are uh, uh, looking forward to those uh, pipelines and interconnectors, which in the future could be also used with some upgrades, of course, to transport hydrogen, for instance. Mm-hmm. And this is also the the uh, philosophy with the new LNG terminals, that at some moment they'll be able to be used for hydrogen or for ammonia or f- for other uh, 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 fears of the future. Uh, and uh, uh, all the new investment that will be made in um, European Union will look into account this situation that should be also used in the future uh, for blending gas, for decarbonized gas, or for uh, for hydrogen. On the very short term, actually, also uh, we need to invest in some interconnectors on a classical, uh, because uh, 
uh, what we were discussing also prior to the podcast was that uh, even that we increase a lot the capacity of LNGs in Spain, for instance, uh, if we will not uh, update, upgrade the interconnector between f- Spain and France, then this gas cannot be used in the rest of European Union. It will be useless because Spain already has everything they need from the current uh, uh, LNG quantities that they are importing and from other sources. Uh, and this is also the situation which is very important for my country, Romania. Our exposure historically to Russian gas was not very high. 10% of our needs came from imports from Russia. Uh, unfortunately, due to the decrease of the internal production, last year was an uh, unhappy record of uh, 30%. But um, uh, in order also for us to come with a solution, we need uh, that uh, interconnector between um, Bulgaria and uh, Greece should be speed up and on the medium term in five six years with the new investment in the black sea of um, uh, offshore gas uh, uh, we'll have the whole quantity and we can also export to other neighboring countries which would like to replace uh, russian gas but for the next two three four years uh, the interconnection in the south could be the only solution that uh, uh, we could have so very quick, we need to upgrade this and we have to upgrade also some of the existing pipelines for new in coming from west or from north, not those coming from Russia. And it's very good that Nord Stream is a dead project. Uh, I didn't understand very much why what happened, wh- why it was a project at the beginning, but now it looks like a dead project. Yeah, you're right to, to look cautious, but this is what I feel and what I believe now. So uh, we have to upgrade those pipelines which are not coming from Russia uh, to expand, to build no new compressors in order to increase the quantity. Here uh, it's something that we already started to work and uh, irrespective from where we'll take the gas, these investments are crucial but are feasible. It's not as big and as difficult as the new energy terminals. And I also understood that the... Uh, LNG terminals to liquefy the gas in uh, United States or Qatar are three times more expensive than those which are built in Europe to regasify because it's a different, uh, it's, uh, a process, yeah, it's a different technological process. I think there are grounds for optimism over the medium to long term in in the area of energy. I mean, already over the past decade, the European energy markets have gotten more competitive, more integrated with you know the third energy package. Mm-hmm certain kinds of contracts that Gazprom used to have with Central Eastern European countries are no longer allowed under under EU law. But, but I suppose my concern is is really the, the short-term one. So there is a war going on. It might go on for the foreseeable future. We get closer to the winter. As you said, it's not feasible to just disconnect countries from Russian gas now. And you know, the closer we are to these cold months, uh, I fear that the more leverage potentially the Kremlin might have over particularly smaller countries where really like now we are in a moment where there is a considerable degree of sort of Western unity over what to do with with with, with, with Russia and Ukraine. But, uh, but but the political dynamics are you know very often unpredictable and uh, and one of the fears by the way that the Germans have are not fears about the economic impact of, of disconnecting from Russia, but just the sort of sheer unpredictability of, of the kind of politics that, that it could set in motion. So, so so how concerned are you about that in the context of Romania, for example, but also in the context of other sort of smaller 
smaller Eastern European if, countries. If I could just add one sentence, uh, I, I can imagine that that pressure will uh, increase, particularly if the Ukrainians are successful in uh, defending or even retaking some territory in the Donbass. Uh, there are lots of powerful European leaders who just want this war to be over and try to put it in the rearview mirror and go back to the status quo. So, uh, so I'm put something uh, down the board's question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Russians are very predictable. At least this is what mm-hmm. uh, what uh, the last months and weeks uh, showed us. On the other hand, my impression is that uh, their dependence on uh, selling gas to Europe is uh, at least uh, as much as important as uh, uh, still dependence of some European countries uh, uh, for Russian gas. But anything could happen, of course. Uh, uh, they could decide to, to, to stop the gas exports uh, uh, just to uh, blackmail European countries, not to divert to other sources and to commit uh, to, to their gas uh, in the future. This will not happen, of course, but they could try to attend this. On the other hand, uh, already a lot of red line were crossed in Ukraine and the Bucha massacre and uh, uh, killing the civilian population, which had a strong impression uh, and impact of, on European uh, population also uh, could be followed, I hope not, but could be followed by tactical nuclear attacks, uh, limited, but of course extremely extremely uh, difficult to accept and of course uh, some experts are talking about chemical weapons so if this red cross, cross line uh, will will uh, this, this red lines will be crossed uh, uh, maybe the pressure for of european uh, public opinion will be very high that they will, will accept that we'll have to shut some part of the industries or even have some difficulties in this winter but not to finance anymore not within even one uh, Euro, uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine. So anything could happen. Uh, we started to, to, to mitigate this, to reduce the impact with the uh, storage and with the uh, uh, solidarity and looking also to short term, uh, because LNG is a little bit medium term, but uh, classic, uh, increase a little bit the, the, the classic imports from Norway, from Algeria, from Azerbaijan, even. It's, it could reduce the impact. We don't have solution to replace now as we agreed a little bit before. So this situation is uh, taken into account by European institutions, by member states, uh, and we'll see what the near future will bring us. But clearly, uh, whatever could happen, uh, we should uh, continue to pursue this road to replace Russian gas in the next years. So you touched on the um, uh, regulatory side of things in the United States, which... Very often it's sort of underappreciated in Europe how you know complicated things are here with you know things like what is it, NEPA, National Environment Protection Act, and, and other less complicated than most of European <laughs> countries. But, 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 but yeah, by American standards, but at the same time, yeah, there, yeah, is, yeah. there is shale gas in some European mm-hmm. countries. You know, Poland has fairly significant supplies potentially. And, and there the, the obstacle seems also to be partly at this regulatory, the absence of mineral rights, for example, people are not as keen to drill because they can't really guarantee that it's going to be theirs. So, so is there any sort of discussion on the regulatory front, either in individual countries that you're aware of or at the EU level? I know that it's obviously complicated because 
there is this overarching ambition to decarbonize the, 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 the European energy sector and, 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 and sort of increasing the reliance on natural gas, you know, might be a sort of bridge solution, but it's not, it's, it's not one that, that the EU wants to tie itself to fully. So, so if you have any thoughts on that, it would be appreciated. Sure. Uh, simplifying the administrative procedures in the United States uh, uh, is something that we cannot interfere very much. We can advocate, uh, we can uh, publicly ask, we can try to understand what it could be done, because this uh, will help us uh, to speed a little bit the LNG imports from from United States. Uh, but clearly, uh, a lot on the regulatory aspects could should be done in Europe. Um, on the gas uh, issue, we don't have big regulatory barriers inside European Union. You mentioned the common energy market. Many of the uh, steps that we did in order to integrate better, to be less dependent, even that we didn't succeed very much. Uh, but also contributing to, this, to solving this situation, uh, what the European Commission will do very quick, actually, this uh, next month, in the, at the middle of May, will come with a legislative proposal to simplify the permitting situation for renewables. Because, uh, unfortunately, we have the situation where uh, permitting a new project for solar or wind takes between two and seven years in the European Union. Uh, some of the countries have a very long permitting uh, uh, duration, and this is something that we want to unify, to give a maximum uh, amount of time in order to permit uh, renewables. Uh, renewable being one of the important part of the solution uh, because taking all the quantity that could be available in the United States it's around 15 BCM I understand maybe it could be a little bit more if more investment will be done in Texas or other part of the countries but still it cannot do anything and even full quantity from Qatar where the margin is much lower because they uh, export a lot in Asia and especially in China doubling the Transatlantic pipeline to Azerbaijan from 10 to 20, so another 10. So find all the suppliers that we can find with all the difficult investment that we can do. It's not enough to replace the whole gas, and we want to replace all Russian gas. So clearly, renewables, it's a, it's a, energy efficiency are solutions, otherwise we cannot do it. So on the regulatory, we go in this, uh, in this direction. And anything that could help also, I see a commitment of European Commission to go fast as they went with the storage and the common platform of procurement of gas. Uh, for the first time in my committee history, I went before the, the European Parliament plenary and I asked the fast-track procedure, so not anymore the long procedure of discussing amendments, but going directly into negotiation with the Council and finishing by the end of June at maximum, but I think it will be uh, uh, sooner. If we can ask you to shift your perspective from Brussels to Bucharest. Yes. Uh, okay. Because, uh, <clears throat> uh, because above all, uh, the, the current war is a war about southeastern Europe. Uh, not just Ukraine, but now we see uh, the Russians uh, uh, creating fires or blowing smoke or whatever the right uh, analogy is uh, in, in Moldova. And so there, there's kind of a, there's a bit in your perspective on the immediate situation. And, and also we have to say the Russians have voted by withdrawing from uh, Kiev, the Kiev front, to the, I mean, I think they 
made it clear that securing the Black Sea coast as much as they can is their number one strategic objective in this war. But also, um, as an as a allied response, as a Western European response, as a NATO response, as an American response, we're, we're doing fabulously well with uh, Finland and maybe Sweden applying for NATO membership. Northeast Europe has become, as in with the, the, the role the Poles have played, solid as, a, as one could possibly imagine. Southeast Europe remains uh, you know, where the danger is, where the division is, uh, where the threat is in particular. I wonder if you could educate us on how we could transform that vulnerability into an equal, equally strong point uh, as a way to, to deter and contain Russian adventurism. What would that look like? Here, Romania can play a pivotal, a very important role, and uh, until now, uh, Romania uh, showed very, uh, very strong commitment to, to the transatlantic relation. We have a special uh, strategic relation partnership with the United States. We are among the most uh, pro-United States countries inside the European Union, and uh, the presence of uh, military presence of the United States in Romania with the NATO base in uh, the, the Black Sea to Kogelnichanu and uh, the anti-nuclear uh, shield in, uh, in uh, the Veselu and the increased presence there is extremely important for Romanian, for Romanians and uh, clearly this could be a point where we could start to uh, strengthen a little bit uh, uh, the region. Uh, of course, uh, we'd like to see an even increased presence in, uh, in the region and there is an idea understood here to uh, increase the presence and to have permanent bases in the Baltic countries, in Poland, in Romania, at least for uh, for the beginning. Um, otherwise, of course, the situation in the region is a little bit complicated. Uh, Bulgaria took also very courageous and clear steps, also with the new uh, government, to uh, and the commitment to be part of the. Uh, Stronger uh, uh, NATO position. Anybody about to be punished by the Russians? Uh, yeah, maybe this is also uh, yeah, uh, a reason for the yeah, for the disconnection. And uh, if, if we discussed already, if Poland is not so much exposed, maybe Bulgaria will have some difficulties, and we have to find some solidarity mechanism to to help them uh, for the coming months, uh, in order to not to have to suffer very much from 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 this decision. Uh, but in the Balkans, the situation is a little bit uh, is a little bit more difficult. In the Central East Europe, I wouldn't say it's very difficult. Of course, there are some less enthusiastic countries, but most of the countries understood that we need to stay united and to uh, uh, strengthen the, the the NATO presence. And of course, uh, there is the dialogue with Turkey, which is also extremely important. Uh, until now, uh, was not the most uh, uh, involved uh, country, but also we cannot uh, say that uh, they were not uh, uh, right. So clearly, uh, uh, the first statements and uh, the good uh, dialogue with uh, the other NATO countries was uh, also extremely important. And here, maybe of course, United States is in a much stronger position than Romania. Uh, the, sol- the solutions could uh, could arise. Can you imagine Romania hosting a? Black Sea fleet that's NATO or yes uh, and also let me just 
we, we've also left out the maritime dimension of the conflict, too. Um, the Ukrainians have been successful in driving the Russian fleet away from the coast, yeah. at least. but that's not Moscow. the same thing as having safe passage. The answer is yes, and Romania, if this will be the situation, uh, can uh, host and can contribute, and uh, this uh, will also strengthen uh, the NATO presence in the region. Well, most immediately, uh, I'm sure you're watching with great concern the developments in Moldova, yes. the Russian force flight operations in, 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 in Transnistria. What do you think the EU's, Romania's and NATO's response should be if Putin decides to escalate this conflict further by trying to pull off, you know, a little green man trick in, in, in Moldova itself, setting himself up for a siege of Odessa and, and mm-hmm. creating a sort of land bridge. There is a strong connection between Romania and Moldova, historical one. Moldova was part of uh, Romania and uh, was taken by Russia several times, last time after the Second World War and uh, Yes, uh, became a Soviet Republic, uh, then gained independence, and uh, we, uh, we we are very close. And uh, now there is also a pro-European uh, and pro-reform uh, government, and also president, because a pro-European government we had in the past several times, not very successful always, but being having also the president and the government and a strong majority in the parliament is something that is extremely important, and also European Union. Uh, helped a lot, Republic of Moldova, and, uh, among the six countries from the Eastern Partnership, uh, Republic of Moldova was seen as the most successful story uh, in going close to European standards, democratizing reform. and uh, reform. Uh, clearly, uh, on the other hand, uh, the military situation, the military capability of Republic of Moldova, it's, uh, it's weaker than, uh, of course, Ukraine, uh, but even other countries in the region for historical reasons. Also, it's a small country. Uh, If this will happen, of course, we have to discuss inside NATO and uh, Romania will be part of the solution, will be very proactive as having also a sentimental uh, connection with the Republic of Moldova. But uh, it should be a NATO decision. And uh, unfortunately, the measures are quite limited because Moldova is not part of NATO, so we cannot trigger the NATO instruments as we could do for the Baltic countries, for Poland, for Romania, and all the NATO countries in case this uh, will happen. Strengthening the sanctions, uh, maybe some other measures could be envisaged, but this will be uh, a NATO decision if this will happen. I hope not. Well, you have to ask, again, sort of, Post-Ukraine, if we could just use that term in the loosest sense, whether this isn't the moment to complete the project of NATO expansion. Uh, I mean, one thing that we've learned from this is that those even most exposed members of the alliance are not the ones who are facing direct attack. I mean, uh, Secretary Blinken said this. The yeah, other day. it's true. Um, so uh, sometimes the truth is or the the path is hard but simple to be yeah. possible to about it. Deterrence, it works. <laughs> Already, expanding NATO is a, a, a discussion with uh, Sweden, and uh, this is clearly uh, a discussion that should be taken. I would uh, love to see Moldova part of the NATO, as I'd love to see part of the European Union at some point. Of course, do not forget that we have Transnistria. It was mentioned that uh, this is now the pretext maybe 
We have Kaliningrad. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, but this is a frozen conflict. This is a presence yes. of a Russian army on the soil of uh, Republic of Moldova, official territory, of course, because uh, it's difficult to recognize as a separatist uh, republic uh, because they don't have any. Uh, they don't have a strong case to, to be like this. Yes. Is as part it is part of the Republic of Moldova. So uh, several things should happen, but clearly to expand NATO. Uh, is uh, is something that uh, is very valid now, and uh, uh, we should uh, look very seriously on this. I think that's a great note on which to conclude. Well, well I mean, that is so typical of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, well, no matter what our troubles are today, there's always a bright, sunshiny horizon. I think it was surprising to share today, actually. <laughs> From Dalbert Rohaj, Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Christian Silvio Bouchoy. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much.